For those of you who are utilizing our children's ministry, we uh, just by way of reminder run that through first grade. For those of you whose kids are staying in the service with us, they're most welcome. If they get a little uh, noisy, um, a little fussy in the middle of the service, uh, you can just take them out to our lobby area over here, get them settled down, come right back in. Uh, We are, they are most welcome to be with us in here. Uh, We have been looking at our confession of faith, the London Baptist Confession of Faith, uh, commonly known as the 1689 or 1677 document that summarizes uh, the various doctrines of Scripture. There's a certain hermeneutic that goes along with um, the way in which this confession was assembled, a a way of interpreting the Scriptures. And so it's an aid uh, as it relates to interpreting the Word of God. And last week we looked at adoption. There was one paragraph there, and this morning uh, we begin to look at the doctrine of sanctification. Um, And this is what paragraph 1 says about the doctrine of sanctification. Those who are united to Christ and effectually called and regenerated have a new heart and a new spirit created in them through the power of Christ's death and resurrection. They're also further sanctified really and personally through the same power by his word and spirit dwelling in them. The dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed and the various evil desires that arise from it are more and more weakened and put to death. It's the process of sanctification, right? At the same time, those called and regenerated are more and more enlivened and strengthened in all saving graces so that they practice true holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And so the one that belongs to Christ, the one that shares union with Christ is the one that will grow in grace the side of eternity. And so that's the first paragraph as it relates to the doctrine of sanctification. But if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. We are back in the Gospel of Mark starting this morning, and we are in chapter 11. And this morning, we are going to look specifically at verses 12 to 26. And the the more I've I've kind of thought through this text, I, I think we need to spend Uh, a couple of weeks here, um, especially as it relates to uh, the last several verses. And so you're going to notice some things this morning uh, that I neglect, and but things that I think are important for us to notice and uh, and by God's grace be changed by in our consideration. But I'm going to read to you verses 12 to 26, and then I am going to pray, and then we will, by God's grace, work through our text together. Mark chapter 11, verses 12 to 26, the word of the Lord says this. Now the next day, when they'd come out from Bethany, he, speaking of Christ, was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, Let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. Verse 15. So they came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to to drive out those who bought and sold 
in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Then he taught them, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of thieves. By the way, an example of righteous anger for us in our text. And the scribes and chief priests heard it, And sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him because all the people were astonished at his teaching. And we've seen that kind of phrase come up over and over in Mark's gospel. Verse 19, when evening had come, he went out of the city. Verse 20, now in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter remembered, said to him, Rabbi, look The fig tree which you cursed has withered away. So Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in God, for assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he'll have whatever he says. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you will receive them and you will have them. And whenever you stand praying... If you have anything against anyone, forgive him that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for allowing us to spend time in your word this morning. God, we ask that you would help us as we consider it together. And Lord, that uh, we would be forever changed as a result of having gathered here, Lord. We know that um, one of the means by which you promise to grow us is through the preaching of your word. And so, Lord, help me to uh, preach in a way that honors you. And Lord, help all of us, God, to have uh, humble hearts so that we can receive your word and that it would bear fruit in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we are uh, obviously back in the Gospel of Mark, and just by way of reminder, since it's been about two months since we've been here, uh, John Mark uh, is the author of the Gospel of Mark, and historically, uh, Mark's Gospel, the Gospel according to Mark, uh, has has been considered in in church history uh, as Peter's memoirs. And as we've journeyed through uh, the gospel together, we've seen how that was probably the case. Mark documenting the, the, the life and the ministry of Jesus through uh, the eyes of the apostle Peter. You know, Peter is someone who perhaps restored John Mark to ministry after he abandoned Paul and Barnabas in their missionary journeys, right? The, the, the same Peter who knew what it was like to abandon someone because he had abandoned Christ and and he had been also restored by Christ. And and this morning we see evidence as it relates to Peter even perhaps telling his account to Mark uh, regarding uh, the person and work of Jesus. According to Mark, it's Peter who noticed that the fig tree on the way back from Jerusalem had been withered and he calls out to Jesus uh, about that matter. And, and, and just to help us remember the context for a moment, our text 
follows the triumphal entry of Jesus, which again, we looked at a couple of months back. And, and we also, uh, as we uh, consider, I think we considered the triumphal entry for, for two weeks. And one of the things that we considered was uh, that, uh, the, uh, that Jesus uh, entering into Jerusalem, right, riding on the donkey, uh, it was a reversal of Ezekiel's prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 11, verses 22 and 23, where we see Ezekiel talk about the glory of God leaving Jerusalem. What we see with Jesus riding in on the donkey all those years ago was the return of the glory of God in Jerusalem. And that will certainly play a part, uh, ha- you know, having that in our minds will play a part, uh, a key part in understanding our text this morning. Now, if you were to compare uh, Mark's account here with that of, of, of Matthew and Luke and John, um, you would uh, see, you'd notice some chronological differences. For instance, Matthew and Luke, they put the judgment of the temple, and I'm calling it the judgment of the temple, not the cleansing of the temple uh, on purpose, and, and that as well will become more clear as we go through our text this morning. But But Matthew and Luke put the judgment of the temple right after Christ's triumphal entry, right after him entering into Jerusalem on the donkey. And actually, Luke, if you were to read Luke's account, he has the triumphal entry. He has Jesus kind of surveying Jerusalem, and he's weeping over Jerusalem, the hardness of heart that Jerusalem has exhibited toward him as Messiah. Um, And John, he records uh, a, a judgment in the temple, but it's much earlier in his gospel account, and it's around the time of the Passover. And, and I think that he's referring to a different instance of Jesus uh, clearing the temple but, uh, or judging the temple, but I'm honestly not quite sure. Uh, but Mark, he, he sort of sandwiches the judgment in the temple in between Jesus's cursing of the, 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 the fig tree. So, so the flow, uh, if, you, if you noticed as I was reading it, it goes fig tree, temple, fig tree, right? It seems like a bit of an interruption. Uh, Matthew has the cursing of the fig tree after the judgment in the temple. There, there's no break in the narrative, okay? John doesn't record it at all. Luke doesn't record it either, but Luke does give us uh, a teaching of Jesus, a parable about um, uh, a fig tree being cut down that harmonizes really well with what we see Jesus do in our text uh, this morning. Now, there are those that would say, uh, uh, particularly skeptics that would see Mark's organization, right? Fig tree, temple, fig tree is evidence that Mark perhaps forgot uh, to add it in. And, and he came back later and he, 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 he put the, uh, the judgment of the temple in, that he, that he had forgotten that. He was writing the fig tree account. He you know, kind of made a mistake, put it, put it in later. But I, I don't think that that is what we see going on in our text. We have seen over and over and over in our study through the gospel of Mark together that he, uh, there's a particular intentionality that he has, specific, specifically for his readers who were largely, if you remember, Gentile, okay, not Jewish. And so, so the, the, the first recipients of the gospel of Mark would have been Gentile readers. And, and that, uh, in a lot of ways, influences the way that the, um, the gospel of Mark was written. 
right? The, the spirit of God, the divine author, the more important author than Mark, right? Didn't make a mistake, didn't forget that that should be added in, right? He inspired Mark, he inspired John Mark to organize uh, the narrative in a particular way. And we will see uh, what is behind that um, in just a few minutes. So, so let's work through our text together. And, and it would be good just, again, have your Bibles open, kind of look uh, at the, the verses as I, as I kind of talk through our passage uh, together. Okay, first we see that, that, that Jesus and his disciples, they're on their way back uh, to Jerusalem, right? That's how the, the text opens up. They're coming from Bethany, which is around two miles away. And we've kind of seen that coming and going, or we're increasingly seeing that, that, that there was a coming and going there as it relates to that. And, and Jesus, he, he sees a fig tree from afar, and he's hungry. Okay, Jesus is hungry. We, we don't want to forget that Jesus is both truly man, right, and he's truly God. So in his humanity, right, in Christ's humanity, he was in need, right? We know in his deity, he's never in need, he's never hungry, right? But in his humanity, being truly human, he's in need. He was hungry. He saw a fig tree that had leaves. In other words, it was a green tree, right? It was a green tree. However, when he went over to it, it says that he found nothing but, but leaves. And, and our text says, quote, for it was not the season for figs. Now, better translated, this would actually say that the, the figs weren't ripe yet. Okay, the figs weren't ripe yet. They weren't ready. They weren't good for eating. And because of that, what do we see Jesus do? Right? He he speaks to the tree, right? He, he talks to the tree. He performs a miracle. He tells the tree that no one will ever eat fruit from it. Again, that it's not going to be profitable to anyone, right? That it's not going to meet anyone's hunger, right? And this cursing, or rather this judgment that's rendered on the fig tree, it, it's the only miracle of destruction in the Gospels, it's the only miracle of destruction in the Gospels, the only one. Now, people have admittedly been perplexed by this. Right? Is, is Jesus overreacting? Right? Did, did, he, did he curse an innocent fig tree because he wanted food from it? He was demanding something that it just wasn't supposed to do, right? It wasn't the season for uh, fruit and Jesus is upset about it, right? In, in fact, there, there are some, believe it or not, that, that would cite this historical event as one of the reasons why they reject Jesus as God. Uh, Bertrand Russell, for instance, if that name is familiar to you, the, the mathematician and the philosopher, he, he did this very thing. He, he was one that viewed religion as, as superstitious, and he referenced this particular miracle in an essay titled, Why, Why I'm Not a Christian. In that essay, he called Jesus vindictive. And he called Jesus vindictive, and he went on to say that Jesus, in both his wisdom and his virtue, is the same as every other man in the history of civilization. In other words, Jesus may have been a man, right, because that's something that a man would do, right? But he's not God, and if he's not God, he's not worthy of our worship. He's not worthy of our devotion. So I give you that as an example 
to say, you know, what we do with a passage like this, and, and, I, and I hope one of the things that comes from us working slowly through a book in the Bible is uh, one of the added benefits is it can train us, it can teach us to pay attention to what we're reading, right? To give it a little bit more consideration and, and uh, because it's, an, it's important. A, a passage like this is important. It's cited by someone uh, and they, they used it uh, as, a, as an excuse, as a reason to reject Christ as God. And there are answers to passages like this if we slow down and, and if we, we pay attention. So again, what we do with a passage like this, it matters. Understanding this passage and specifically looking, and, and this should be when we're reading Scripture, when we're studying Scripture, when you're hearing Scripture um, being read or proclaimed from the pulpit, our, our main question should be, what is the divine intent behind this passage? Right? What's the divine intent behind this passage? And Again, we're going to revisit that more in a moment. Now, after Mark's recording of, of, of Jesus judging the fig tree, the narrative, as you see by now, right, it seemingly gets interrupted. Right? Jesus and his disciples, they come into Jerusalem, and Jesus, in righteous indignation, right, in, 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 in righteous anger, he drives out money changers, right, people who would charge a premium uh, to exchange foreign money so that those who came to give could give their, uh, the, the money that was accepted in the temple at the time, the, their half shekel to the Lord. Right? He, he drove out those who were charging these exorbitant prices for animals, including animals like, like doves, for instance, that were to be used as a sacrifice. And, and in the text, though, we see him uh, drive out not only those who were selling things and charging exorbitant prices, but he also drove out those that were buying those things, too. So not just the people that were selling, but the people that were buying, right? And, and he prohibited people from bringing in wares, which refers to like uh, jars that contain goods, perhaps more items that could be sold for profit. Now, there's no reason for us to think that he drove every single person out that was doing this. That This part of the temple was really large. This was a large part of the temple. The, the text doesn't speak to how extensive Jesus's judgment was here. Right? He did, however, drive out both sellers and buyers. So, so we can't conclude that Jesus was preventing people for, from, from paying a, a premium on money exchanges and paying a premium on animals to sacrifice. That's not what we see, that the, uh, th that's not what this is about primarily. Also, while he may have eradicated the temple of, of, of commerce, in, in, uh, while he may not have eradicated it of, of every commerce, he, he did enough of it that people noticed. Right? People noticed specifically the, the scribes and the chief priests. Okay, the, the religious leaders of the day, the, the Sanhedrin, right? And by this time, and, and you can see this in our text as well, they hated Jesus. They hated Jesus, right? The, uh, the, the, they, were, they were already planning ways that they could murder Jesus. And, and the, the, the only thing that was pre preventing them, right, was their fear of man, 
right? Jesus had a following. Jesus was, there was, um, um, people were astonished at the authority that Christ exhibited. And, and this was the way in which God restrained the relig- relig- religious leaders from murdering Jesus into, until the, the right time. Um, and so we see, right, Jesus, he comes in, there's a scene that's caused in the way in which he brings judgment down in the temple, and then in his righteous anger, he teaches. He teaches, which we often see Jesus do. Verse 17 says that he, Jesus not only chased off the buyers and sellers, but he, he specifically taught. And here's what he said. Look at verse 17 with me. Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. So my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. Now, a few things, right? What, what is Jesus doing, and who is the you that he's referring to, right? When he says, you have made it, a den of thieves, who's he speaking to? So, first, what's Jesus doing? Right? And Jesus is he's, he's quoting and he's teaching and he's applying Scripture. He's applying the Old Testament. First Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7 says this, Even then I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. He's also uh, quoting, teaching, applying. Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 8 to 11. Jeremiah, standing at uh, what's called the gate of the Lord's house, he says this, Behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will you steal and murder and commit adultery and swear falsely and burn incense to Baal and walk after other gods whom you do not know and then come and stand before me and this house which is called by my name and say, we're delivered to do all these abominations. Has this house which is called by my name become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I, even I have seen it, says the Lord. So, what is Jesus doing? He, he's preaching and he's applying right, the text of Scripture to a particular group of people. He's teaching, and, and, and there's no reason to think that his exposition of this isn't longer than what we have. Right? We, we could be getting the shorthand account, uh, especially in, in Mark's fashion of, of, of Jesus spending time teaching uh, these Old Testament passages and applying it uh, in real time to what he had observed going on in the Jewish temple there. And who is he applying it to? Right? So who is the you that he's applying it to? Well, it's the Jewish people, but specifically, especially the religious people. And so if you're taking notes, and kids, you, you've got this fill in the blank on, on yours, you can look on with mom and dad, write this down. Jesus is the great judge. Jesus is the great judge. We, we could examine this from, from different angles, but, but think about it like this for a minute. Jesus rode in on a donkey as king. 
right? The glory of God is returned to Jerusalem, and he's found Jerusalem wanting, right? He's found Jerusalem in a spiritual state that is not healthy, right? So this Messiah, this one who came to save, he's rendered a verdict, and the verdict is guilty. It's guilty. And he brings down judgment as a king, and he brings down judgment as a king. He does this as he, he flips the tables over in his righteous anger. And it's his right, it's his prerogative to do that. Right? We also see him, if we looked at it from a different angle, in his, in, in his office as prophet. Right? If we see him acting a particular way in his kingly role, we see him acting a particular way, in a prophetic way, right? as he executes judgment in his preaching and in his applying of the word of God to the Jewish people and again specifically to the religious leaders. And the religious leaders, they hear this. They hear this. He, he, he's, not, he's not whispering, right? Again, there, there, there's, a, uh, there's a commotion that has happened that has gotten the attention Sovereignly speaking, God's right, divine will has gotten the attention of the people who need to hear it. Right? The people who need to hear what Jesus has to say, the people who need to see what it is that Jesus is doing in that text, they see it. They hear it. They're within ear earshot. So they hear the preaching of Jesus. They hear the preaching of one who's not just truly a man. They hear the preaching of God himself. Now, does it soften them? Does the preaching of Jesus the Christ, right? Jesus the Messiah, does it soften, particularly these religious leaders? Does it drive them to humility? Does it drive them to repentance? The answer is no, right? It, it further hardens them toward Jesus, right? And the scripture does that very thing when it's preached. It will either humble you according to the spirit of God, or it's going to further cement you in your pride, right? And what specifically, right, if we think about it, what's being addressed here? And, and maybe you're thinking, how in the world does this relate to the fig tree? <laughs> right? Well, I think that Jesus is addressing hypocrisy. He's addressing hypocrisy, and the judgment of the fig tree for being green yet without fruit or ripe fruit or being, you know, ready fruit, I think it was a foreshadowing of what was to come in the temple. If we think about it in this way, and Jesus, his, his cursing of the fig tree and its relation to the hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders, it harmonizes well even with the, the parable of the fig tree that Luke records for us. Let me just read it to you quickly. Luke's, Luke chapter 13, verses 6 to 9. He also spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, Look, for three years I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said, Sir, let it alone this year until I dig around and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well. But if not, after that you can cut it down. We see Jesus using a fig tree in a parable, right? and, and we see his actual judgment on, on an actual fig tree as, I think, a lesson 
on hypocrisy, a lesson on not bearing fruit in keeping with repentance, which we see as another lesson in Matthew chapter 3, verse 8. But what is hypocrisy? What is it exactly? I, I found a great definition of hypocrisy this week from R.C. Sproul. He defines it like this. If I, if I claim not to do something sinful, and then you see me do it, I'm guilty of hypocrisy. Okay? But if you see me do something sinful that I never claimed that I did not do, I'm a sinner, but I'm not a hypocrite. Okay? There's a, there's a difference there. Right? There's a difference there. If I claim not to do something sinful and then you see me do it, I'm guilty of hypocrisy. But if you see me do something sinful that I never claimed I did not do, I am not a sinner, but I am, uh, I am a sinner, but I am not a hypocrite. So, again, the Jews here, the, 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 the Jewish leaders, the, the supposed shepherds, they acted like pagans, yet they claimed to worship Yahweh. Right? They claimed to worship the Lord. They pretended to be close to God. They declared that they were close to God, yet it was a show. It was a show. There, there was no fruit that was indicative uh, of, of someone walking in repentance. And, and again, even Jesus teaching them, rebuking them, even that did not produce fruit in keeping with repentance, right? It only solidified them in their sins. It only solidified their, their inability to see, right? God clearly, who is God? And themselves in light of who God is. They were as, as immoral as the bell worshipers in the Jeremiah passage that Jesus quoted and taught from, right? They, they turned the temple into a a den of thieves, a resort, if you will, for those who would line their own pockets with money. They, they turned the temple into a, a lair of, of wild beasts who devour those that should be nurtured in the faith. Right? These religious leaders, the, 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 the Sanhedrin, they were profiting from all of this commerce that was going on. They were making lots of money right, at the Jewish temple. And if you want to get a snapshot at just the potential for profit, Josephus, who was a Jewish historian in the first century, he wrote this. In AD 66, the year that the temple was completed, 255,600 lambs were slaughtered. That's a lot of sacrifices. That didn't speak to the doves or any other type. It's just the lambs, right? There is a lot of potential, there was a lot of potential profit. There was a lot of commerce going on. But listen, these religious leaders using the temple to get rich, that's not even the worst of it. That's not the worst of it. In fact, I don't even think that's the primary thing that we, again, see Jesus addressing in our passage this morning. The main thing being addressed in the Jewish temple was that it was intended to be something that it never became. It was intended to be something that it never became. This is why Jesus teaches from Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7. Look again there with me. Even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Listen, 
the temple was always supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, for all nations. And did you, did you know that about the Jewish temple? Did you know that it was for all nations? Not just the Jews, but for the Gentiles. Now let me explain this a little bit more, but before I do, you can, you can jot this down. God's plan from the beginning is gospel for all. Right, God's plan from the beginning, gospel for all. Understanding the, 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 the way that the temple was laid out, it'll help us to see what I think is the most significant point in our text this morning. One commentator makes this description really accessible for us. This is, this is how he described uh, the, the Jewish temple. It says, the Jewish temple, it was one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was a huge complex that was divided into four parts. Okay? The court of the Gentiles, the court of the women the court of the Jews, and the Holy of Holies. Okay, so it's the four parts of the, the Jewish temple in the first century, right? The court of the Gentiles, the court of women, the court of the Jews, and the Holy of Holies. And the court of the Gentiles was the largest part of the temple complex. Okay, it was the largest part of the temple complex. Now, why was it the largest part? Well, practically speaking, right, there are more Gentiles than there are Jews. And kids, when I use the word Gentiles, I mean everybody that's not a Jew, right? There's more Gentiles than there are Jews. Now, the organization of the temple, if we were to study it together, and we don't have time for that this morning, but it would remind us of what we already know, which is that the gospel was preached first to the Jew, and then it was to be delivered to the Gentiles, right? The, the temple was designed for the Gentiles to be within earshot of God's truth being proclaimed. Now, the court of the Gentiles was designed so that the Jews could be a blessing to the nations. It was designed so that the Jews could be a blessing to the nations. The, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was always to be announced, not just to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. But these religious leaders, again, especially the Sanhedrin here, these scribes uh, and, and these Pharisees that were in charge, they despised the presence of the Gentiles. They despised it. So what did they do? They made the temple inhospitable to them. They made the temple inhospitable to them. They put things in place to send the message, you are not welcome here. You are not wanted here. God is not for you. Go somewhere else. That's the message. And they did this by using the court of the Gentiles as a place of commerce, not a place of worship, as a place of commerce. So instead of it being a place of worship, it was a place of profit. Instead of it being a light to the nations, it was a place where animals were housed and stored for, sold for extortionate prices to travelers coming to make a sacrifice. Instead of it being a place where people from all different walks of life could hear the scripture, all they heard was the bargaining of prices. There was no place for the Gentile. There was no place for the unclean. There was no place for the undesired. Now, it was widely believed and hoped by the Jewish leaders, and perhaps this extended to the Jewish people, since the Jewish leaders were discipling the Jewish people, that when the Messiah came, 
that he would come and purge the Gentiles from the court. Just get them out. Right? So the Jewish believers, or the Jewish leaders, they assumed that the Messiah would agree with them. Right? That's how deceived they were. But what do we see Jesus do? He came and he made room for the Gentiles. And he came and he made room for the Gentiles. He came and made room for the unwanted. He came and he made room for the unclean. He began clearing things out. And in doing so, he reasserted the purpose that the temple was supposed to have all along. Right? It wasn't supposed to be a den of thieves, but a house of prayer for all nations. Right? For all types of people. Now, let me connect the dots again as it relates both to the fig tree and what we see Jesus doing in the temple. And I want to do so just by reading a line from a commentary to you. And then I want to, go to, I want to give us three applications as I close us out this morning. First, the, the commentary. The leafy fig tree, with all of its promise of fruit, is as deceptive as the temple, which despite its religious commerce and activity is really an outlaw's hideout. The curse of the fig tree is a symbol of God's judgment of the temple. Now, three applications, because I, I, re, I really do want us to apply this text to where we are this morning. Okay? Jesus, in, in, in judging the temple, in, in driving out the, the commerce, he's, he's not restoring the temple. That's why I don't, I don't really like the word cleansing the temple. He's not, he's, he wasn't trying to restore the temple, right? Remember, Jesus is the glory of God. Not, not, the temple is not the glory of God, right? I think what Jesus is doing in our text, he's, he's foreshadowing the dissolving of the temple, right? If the, the life of the temple was found in its commerce, then Jesus was chopping at its roots, right? He was chopping at its roots, and it's no coincidence that in Mark's account, on the way back, Peter observes that the fig tree that Jesus had cursed, it's withered. It's dead, right? And the text talks about it being withered at its roots, right? It's dead at its roots. It's not coming back. It's not growing. It's not going to be helpful to anybody. The temple that was supposed to be a light to the nations, a house of prayer for the nations, the, the, the temple that was supposed to prepare people for the coming Messiah, it failed to do that very thing. And the coming of Jesus made it obsolete. Right? It made it obsolete. The Messiah judged it as he judged the fig tree. Right? It would wither as the fig tree withered. And we see that very thing, by the way, happen in the, 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 the fate of, 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 of the Jewish temple. In, in, in the fall of Jerusalem, right, we see that the temple was destroyed within the generation that Christ lived in. It was destroyed in the year 70. Now, again, a, a few applications for us to hear this morning as we seek to bring this to bear on our lives. If the fig tree was a symbol for a greater judgment of Jesus, meaning his judgment on the temple, then the judgment of the temple should alert us to Jesus' second return, second coming, when he returns as the judge of the world, right? All will be judged by Christ. All will be judged by Christ. And those who trust in Christ alone, those who find their hope, their faith in the Lord, they will find peace with God on the day of judgment, right? They, they are the ones that bear fruit 
because they share union, true union with Jesus. I referenced this a moment ago, and by the way, this was a warning to the religious leaders too, but Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 3, verse 8, that you're to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, right? And so is your walk with the Lord this morning, is it characteristic of repentance and faith, right? Is it characteristic of repentance and faith, or are we hypocrites? Are we hypocrites? Are we claiming to be something, a Christian or close to God, that in reality we're not, Are we doing things that we say we're not doing? Remember, hypocrisy, it's different from being a sinner. Hypocrisy implies pretending. It implies acting, right? Covering up who you really are. But is your life, is it indicative of union with Jesus, right? Are you forgiven? Blessed is he, happy is he, whose transgressions are forgiven? Are you living the blessed life, the happy life, which is the forgiven life? Are you at peace with the Lord? Another application for us this morning, are you behaving in such a way toward a sinner that you're preventing them from hearing the gospel or coming to Christ? You must repent of this. There there are two things as I see it in our text this morning as it relates to this. There's, There's making room for others. Right? The, the Jews, particularly the Jewish leaders, they despised the Gentiles. They didn't want them at the temple. Right? Jesus makes it clear, though, that they belonged there, that he wanted them there. Right? It didn't really matter what they wanted. Right? He wanted them there. Also, the second thing, there's a truth-telling aspect to this. Right? The Gentiles needed to be allowed to be there so that they could be told the truth. Where else are they going to hear it? Right? They needed to be in a position where they could hear the truth of the Word of God so that it can be brought to bear on their lives so that they can see Jesus as the all-sufficient Savior that He is. So they needed this opportunity to be reconciled to God. That's the second application. One more application for us this morning, and I'll close us in prayer. Are you here this morning, and have you felt prevented from coming to God? Have you yourself felt prevented from coming to God? Have you felt unwanted? Have you felt unwelcome like the Jewish leaders made the Gentiles feel? Or perhaps you've been missing from the gathering with the church for a while because you feel like you've got to change yourself before you come to God. You feel like you have to clean yourself up before you come to God. I want to encourage you this morning. Come to Christ. Come to Christ no matter who you are. He's the one that makes you clean. He's the one that makes you clean. Don't let anything, anything, prevent you from coming to Christ. His gospel is for you. Take hold of it. Or rather, take, take hold of Him who can be your treasure, and who can be your all in all. We go to the Lord in prayer together. God, we thank you for time in your word. God, we pray that it would take root in our lives, God, that it truly would bear fruit, God. And Lord, we thank you for Christ, who's the glory of God, who's our sufficient Savior, and it's in him alone that we rest. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.